Well, a very happy Lord's Day to you. Uh, in this, our sixth sermon this morning of our 11-part uh, series on the nature of Scripture, uh, we're going to be looking at the issue of the clarity of Scripture. And as we have done over previous weeks, we're going to do again today, which is to look at a paragraph or a statement from a confession of faith um, from our forebears in times past in church history. And this morning, uh, just prior to our sermon on the clarity of Scripture, we're going back once again to really what is the definitive statement of specifically Presbyterian doctrine. Uh, we're going to the Westminster Confession of Faith from the 1640s, and we're going to read section 1.7 of the Westminster Confession. This speaks to the issue of the clarity of Scripture. So here's how it reads. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned... But the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Now, toward the end of that statement, when it speaks of the use of ordinary means to understand the Bible, what it's talking about there is the preaching and teaching of the scriptures. So through the preaching and teaching office of the church of Jesus Christ, the saints may attain unto a sufficient understanding of the scripture. So that's the reference there. Well, may God continue to bless your time in worship. I'll be back a little bit later to bring a message on the clarity of scripture. Well, good morning, everybody. I hope that already in our time of worship, the Lord has been drawing near to you, strengthening you, nourishing you, uh, giving you sustenance. As we turn to our time of preaching now, let's pause once again for prayer. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for each person who is watching this service right now. Lord, thank you for their love for you, for their willingness to serve you, for the grace that you've given each one, and for their uh, desire to grow in grace. Lord God, we're praying now in this time of preaching that you would give us anointing uh, for myself as the preacher, but also for listeners, that we would increasingly deepen in our love for you and for your word. Uh, Lord God, that we would uh, indeed grow in grace during this time, and that, Lord God, uh, you would be glorified, that you would be magnified and honored in everything we do. We pray these things in the name of our Master and Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Erasmus was a contemporary, lived at the same time um, uh, as Martin Luther. Erasmus was a humanist scholar who maintained his membership in the Catholic Church for his entire life. One of the claims of both Erasmus and the Catholic Church, in fact, 
One of the claims that they were making in the early 16th century was that the average person in the church undoubtedly needed the help of Mother Church if that person was ever to understand Scripture properly because, said Erasmus and said the Catholic Church, there are things in Scripture that are so difficult and so obscure that even learned members of the clergy have a hard time understanding them. The idea was, what hope does the average person in the pew have, what hope does that person have as, the, as they try by themselves to understand Scripture if even clergy find Scripture to be difficult? Erasmus and the Catholic Church argued that the average person most certainly needs the aid of the Holy Mother Church for the reading and for the understanding of Scripture. And of course, one of the obvious dangers in that particular 16th century context was this. And here I'm quoting from John Feinberg. Feinberg says that the danger in Erasmus's position was, quote, that the church could construct doctrines that favored its own power and flourishing, and if such doctrines based on scripture interpretations the church sanctioned were questioned, the church could always say that those who rejected its doctrines and interpretations simply weren't in a position to do so. Close quote. That's John Feinberg. Well, Martin Luther came along and he essentially detonated the argument that Erasmus had been making, and Luther did that by pointing out that God has given, listen, God has given the believer everything that he or she needs for a clear understanding of Scripture. Luther spoke about God securing for the believer both external clarity and internal clarity when it comes to Scripture. Well, what was Luther talking about here? External clarity has to do with the fact that the Bible has come to us written in plain language and can be understood on an intellectual level by the average person. External clarity means that the Bible does not come to us written in some sort of code language. The understanding of Scripture is not reserved for some spiritually elite group of people. The Bible was written so that every person might understand it. Kevin Van Hooser is an author who helps us grasp this idea of external clarity when he says this, quote, the external clarity of Scripture means that any well-intentioned interpreter who follows the rules of language and literature can discover the author's intended meaning, intended message. 
Well, that's a little bit about Luther's external clarity of Scripture. But as we said, Luther also spoke of internal clarity. And here, what Luther was getting at was the Holy Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit's work as we approach Scripture, where the Spirit opens our eyes to the truth of Scripture. Where the Spirit overcomes our spiritual blindness so that on an internal level, we see the Bible for what it really is. Internal clarity has to do with the work of the Spirit in bringing us to see the truth of Scripture and to apply the truth of Scripture to ourselves and to obey it. Internal clarity. Now, Luther argued that both external clarity and internal clarity, the external and internal clarity of the Scripture, both are necessary for us. Both must be held together. And in fact, God has generously provided both of them to us. Well, friends, this morning, our subject is the clarity of Scripture, or as it's sometimes called, the perspicuity of Scripture. Now, that word, perspicuous, uh, this word means, very simply, clearly expressed or presented. Clearly expressed or presented. Luther and the Reformers argued that Scripture is perspicuous. Scripture is clearly expressed or presented. Now, we would expect, would we not, we would expect that if a great king issued a very crucially important edict, that that king would want his edict to be as clear as it possibly could be. God, the great king, the king of kings, God, in issuing his Bible to us, in issuing his word concerning our salvation, concerning our rescue, God has made his word as plain and as clear as it possibly could be. Now this morning we're focusing our attention for the most part, for the most part on the external clarity that Luther talked about. So that is to say that we're focusing on the written text of Scripture itself and its clarity. The written text of Scripture itself and its clarity. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll talk a little bit more about the other side, internal clarity, where the Spirit does his work in us. But for now, we're talking about, and this is very important, we're talking about the clarity of Scripture, the clarity of the Bible itself. When we speak of the clarity of Scripture, we are asserting that God himself has spoken and that he continues to speak through his written word And that because God is clear, his word also is clear. The clarity of Scripture is tied directly to the clear 
God, and it has to do with the quality of the written text itself, the clarity of Scripture. Listen, friends, God's Word, the Bible, is clear enough that a six-year-old child can understand his responsibility before God as he reads it or as he hears it. And it's clear enough, likewise, it's clear enough for the adult with a PhD to understand her responsibility before God. This doctrine of the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture says that everything that God wants us to know for salvation in Christ and for growth as his disciples has been given to us clearly in Scripture. One more time, everything that God wants us to know for salvation in Christ and for growth as his disciples has been given to us clearly in Scripture. This week I ran across, in my study, I ran across several different definitions of the clarity of Scripture, and one of the best ones that I found comes to us from Greg Allison. I want you to listen carefully to what Allison says, because I think it gives us quite an accurate picture of what we're talking about here. Allison writes... The clarity of Scripture means that it was written in such a way that ordinary human beings, possessing the normal acquired ability to understand written and or oral communication, can read Scripture with understanding. Or if they are unable to read, can hear Scripture read and comprehend it. Men and women, young and old, urbanites and desert nomads, seminary trained and uneducated, can read and understand the Bible. Well, I think that's as good a basic definition of the clarity of Scripture as you'll find. Now, There are several places in Scripture itself where the clarity of God's Word is affirmed. The clarity of Scripture is affirmed in Scripture itself. I want to spend some time with you now engaging just some of those places. Again, these are places in the Bible itself where the clarity of the Bible is affirmed. So first of all, come with me to Deuteronomy 29 and Deuteronomy 30. Notice the very last verse of Deuteronomy 29 where we read this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Now notice the assumption in the latter part of that verse. The assumption there is that what God has revealed is intelligible enough, it is understandable enough that people can go and do 
what it says. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. God's revealed word is understandable enough that people are accountable here to do or to obey what it says. So this verse clearly, very clearly implies the clarity of Scripture. And then in Deuteronomy 30, we have uh, verses 11 through 14. Let's read those verses. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that what? You can do it. Again, what's the assumption in that paragraph of, scri of Scripture? The assumption is that God's words in the covenant are clear enough. They are understandable enough that people can do, must do, what the words are commanding. Moses says to the people of God here that God's words can be understood. God's words are very clear, and thus God's word must be obeyed. Again, friends, the broader point that we're making here is that Scripture itself speaks to the issue of Scripture's clarity. There's also another passage in the same book of Deuteronomy that I think profoundly speaks to how clear God's words are, and that is Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7, where we read, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. What's the idea here? The idea is that God's covenant words are so clear that parents are able to teach them to their children. Children can understand God's words. God's words are so clear, in fact, that small children can understand them. And then over in the Psalms, we have a verse like Psalm 19:7. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now notice that. Even the simple, that is, even the naive person who lacks wisdom, who perhaps lacks sound judgment, even the simple is made wise by God's testimony, by God's words. God's words are so clear that even the simple are made wise by them. R.C. Sproul wrote this, quote, 
God's message is simple enough for the most simplistic of his fallen creatures to understand. Sproul asks, what kind of God would reveal his love and redemption in terms so technical and concepts so profound that only an elite core of professional scholars could understand them? Close quote. Friends, God has lovingly and God has generously given revelation that even the most simple person can understand God's word is clear. Over in the New Testament, we have the very well-known Great Commission passage in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus said, we know this passage well, many of us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now notice there, won't you, that among other things, Jesus puts a premium on us making disciples and teaching those disciples to do what? To observe all that he commanded. The assumption that Jesus makes there is that the deposit that we have of his saving work, the deposit we have of his saving work, and the deposit we have of all that he commanded, which is what? It's the Bible. That the Bible is clear enough, Jesus assumes, it's clear enough that through it, people will come to faith in Christ and become disciples of Christ and learn to understand his commandments and observe his commandments. Jesus here assumes that the word is clear for salvation and clear for matters of discipleship and that the word of God will be that way after he uh, is gone off the, the scene on the earth, that the word will be that way in the year 300 AD and in the year 1625 and in 2020 and beyond. Likewise, the apostle Paul assumed the clarity of God's word. When Paul says something like this, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope, Romans 15.4. When he says that, he assumes that the things formerly written in the Old Testament scriptures are clear enough that we will understand them and grasp them and hence that we will be instructed by them and gain hope from them. In Romans 15.4, Paul assumes the clarity of written Scripture, just as he assumes the clarity of Scripture over in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says that the things that happened during the Exodus 
took place as examples for us. 1 Corinthians 10.6 Now for something to serve as an example for you, you must be able to understand it. It can't be gibberish. Paul assumes that we will understand the written record of the Exodus events that are found in Scripture, and that in understanding those things, that they will serve as an example to us. Paul assumes that the scriptural record of the Exodus is clear, that it is comprehensible to us, so that it might serve as a powerful example to us. Now, friends, for all that we've just said, all that we've just pointed to regarding the clarity of Scripture, I want to be clear, what we're not saying is that every part of Scripture is easy to understand. In fact, there are parts of Scripture that are hard to understand. But listen, there can be a difference between something being hard to understand and something being clear. Again, there can be a difference between something being hard to understand and something being clear. Words can be crystal clear, but still hard for us to understand. For example, take time to read this sentence to yourself. Just give you time to read this sentence. Now, that's a perfectly clear statement that can be perfectly understood, but it's also a somewhat difficult statement, isn't it? A difficult statement to understand the first time we read through it because of the use of all of the heteronyms. Read, read, lead, led. So, properly understood, the sentence reads like this. Red rhymes with lead... And read rhymes with lead, but red and lead don't rhyme, and neither do read and lead. Okay, so again, the basic point that we're making here in this, the basic point is that words can be perfectly clear, but still hard for us to understand. Perfectly here, clear, but still hard to understand. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.16, he comes out and admits that some of the things in the Apostle Paul's letters, for example, some of those things are hard to understand. That's the language he uses there. But again, being hard to understand is not the same thing as being unclear. Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in a very clear manner. It's just that some of his words are more difficult for us to understand than others. Clear scripture does not necessarily mean easy scripture or scripture that's always elementary to grasp. It may be difficult. We may need to grapple intellectually with texts of scripture and we may need to do detailed interpretive work. Not everything is obvious. Some passages have a sort of mystery about them. We need to dig deep and study them. 
And just as the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 needed Philip to come and help him grasp the meaning of Scripture, so we may need others who are more mature, more experienced in the Scriptures to come along and help us understand. I have several commentaries on biblical books on the shelf in my study. I use those commentaries very amply in my uh, sermon prep. God has blessed his church. He's blessed his church with skilled scholars who are very helpful to us, uh, along with suggesting many solid applications of the biblical texts The commentators can also assist us greatly. They can assist us in sorting out difficult passages. We may indeed benefit from the interpretive help of other believers, people we know personally, or from the help of the pastor who's preaching, or the help of other believers whose books we read, We can benefit from that as we seek to understand and interpret Scripture, but accessing that kind of help is very different. It's very different than saying, as Erasmus and the 16th century Catholics were saying, that the Pope and his priests are necessary to bring clarity to an otherwise obscure Bible. It's very different than that. The Bible, we claim... With the reformers, we claim the Bible is clear enough in and of itself for the purposes of salvation and for following Jesus Christ. It plainly reveals to us all we need to know for salvation in Christ and for following him. Now, I think a very helpful and important distinction to make at this juncture, and I want you to listen, Uh, An important distinction to make is the distinction between the perfect clarity of Scripture and the lack of clarity in the human reader of Scripture. This is a very important distinction that we have to get right. There is a great gap between the clarity of Scripture itself and the lack of clarity in fallen human readers themselves. Whenever something in Scripture seems unclear to us, whenever it seems difficult to understand, we can automatically assume that the problem is with us and not with the Scriptures. Again, whenever something in Scripture seems unclear to us or difficult to understand, we can automatically assume that the problem is with us and not with the Scriptures. God has given to us clear Scriptures. To paraphrase uh, Matthew Barrett, clarity is a property of God-breathed Scripture itself, not of the reader of Scripture. Again, clarity is a property of God-breathed Scripture itself, not of the reader of Scripture. Wayne Grudem has made the point, I think it's a good point, that Jesus never 
puts the blame for misunderstanding Scripture on some lack of clarity in the Scriptures. He never does that. Instead, we see Jesus putting the blame for misunderstanding Scripture on those who misunderstand, on those who perhaps fail to accept what is written. Jesus always says stuff to people like this. Have you not read? Or have you never read in the scriptures? Or he says to Nicodemus, you are a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Where's the unclarity there in John 3.10? Is it in Scripture or is it in Nicodemus? It's in Nicodemus. You don't understand, Jesus says. Or to a group of confused Sadducees in Matthew 22, Jesus says simply, you don't know the Scriptures. (laughs) For Jesus, the blame for unclarity went not to the Scriptures, but to the people who had the Scriptures and were misreading the Scriptures or failing to read the Scriptures altogether. Now, you may hear uh, people ask from time to time, they'll ask a question like this. If Scripture is as clear as you say it is, then why do we have hundreds of different divergent readings of Scripture across thousands of different church denominations? Doesn't that fact suggest that Scripture is maybe not as clear as you make it out to be? They'll ask a question like that. Or along the same lines, people may ask a question like this. If Scripture is so clear, then why did one group of people use Scripture to justify the Crusades when another group of people read the polar opposite interpretation from exactly the same texts? And the answer to all those sorts of questions is this. Scripture itself cannot be indicted for being unclear. The reason we have had and we continue to have so many divergent readings and differing interpretations of Scripture is because as people living after the fall of humankind in Genesis 3, we are unclear. We are unclear. We are confused and darkened in our thinking. Scripture is not. If we want to look at a passage of the Bible and pronounce upon it, Scripture is unclear here. What have we just done? What we've just done is we've placed our finite darkened powers of reason and judgment, we've placed those things above the clarity and the authority of the text of Scripture. And before God, that is a dangerous business. A dangerous business. Well, friends, as a summarizing sort of statement here, Take you back to Kevin Van Hooser again. He says this, 
it is highly misleading to charge the text with obscurity when in fact the unclarity resides where? In the psychology of the human knower. Here's the great reality, friends. Sin has hampered our spiritual sight. To to use Luther's picture, if the Bible is like the shining sun, bright and clear, it's our spiritual sight that is covered with mud so that we can't see the sun clearly. The Spirit works to take the mud off our spiritual sight. More on that next week. And the Spirit does that so that progressively we see the perspicuous, shining, clear Word of God ever more clearly. Well, as we land this plane today, so to speak, as we work toward a close, I want to remind you once again that our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one sent by the Father to reconcile sinners like you and I to God by his shed blood on the cross, Jesus had nothing but confidence in the clarity of his Bible, which at the time was the Old Testament. And we can see this confidence on display in many of the questions that Jesus asks and in the statements that he makes. In Matthew 12, when the Pharisees were raising questions about Sabbath observance, what did Jesus do? He took them immediately to the Scriptures. Twice he said to the Pharisees in verses 3 and 5, Matthew 12, Twice he says, have you not read? Have you not read? Jesus pointed them to the scriptures for the solution to their Sabbath problem. Jesus assumed that the scriptures were clear enough that the Pharisees should not have the issue that they were having. Jesus had confidence in the clarity of scripture. And we see the same pattern from our Lord in Matthew 19.4. Have you not read, again, and in Matthew 21.42, have you never read in the Scriptures? And in Matthew 22.29, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And two verses after that, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-one, Jesus says, Have you not read what was said to you by God? And in John three ten again to Nicodemus, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Friends, the case is crystal clear, no pun intended. It's crystal clear that Jesus had solid abiding confidence in the clarity of Scripture. If people would read Scripture carefully, read it humbly, read it diligently and prayerfully, so many of their questions and issues would be sorted out. 
Mark Thompson, in his book, A Clear and Present Word, The Clarity of Scripture, he's written a whole book on this, he says, quote, to confess the clarity of Scripture is to adopt the same attitude as Jesus demonstrated in his own use of the Old Testament. Thompson says, to confess the clarity of Scripture is to align ourselves with the confidence of the apostolic writers who appealed to the Old Testament as intelligible and decisive even when addressing predominantly Gentile audiences. Close quote. My friend, this morning I ask you, even as you watch, do you have confidence in the clarity of your Bible? Are you in the company of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles on this very important matter? Do you take it for granted that because God is clear, his written word is also clear? Clear enough that a well-intentioned reader can come to Scripture and discover there all things necessary for salvation and the Christian life. Do you have confidence that way? Do you have confidence in the clarity of Scripture like Jesus and his apostles did? As Matthew Barrett has pointed out, our position under the Bible is the position of pupils and not masters. Pupils, not masters. I've often said that the title of the initial theological degree that I earned, Master of Divinity, that's really a bit of a joke, that title. None of us master divinity. Of all things, we don't master divinity. We are all pupils. We are students. We are learners under the Word of God. Which means that if there are places in Scripture that we find difficult to understand, we approach those issues humbly as pupils, knowing that at the end of the day, the difficulty in our understanding is with us and not with God's clear word. We pray for his illumination, the Spirit's illumination, of the scriptural uh, knot that we are trying to untie. Our prayer is that of the psalmist. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. And alongside our prayers, we also do the spade work, the spade work of studying the text or texts further, and seeking the wisdom that God has given to other students of the Bible across the ages. And we know and we trust that the resolution to our difficulty does exist, it does exist, even if we can't quite see it at the moment, because God's word is clear. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you and thank you, and we fall on our knees in gratitude, in fact, for the fact that you have given us such a clear word, such an authoritative, inerrant, inspired, beautiful, life-giving 
word. We thank you, Lord God, and we pray this week as we open the scriptures that we would come to new places of trembling before you, new places of understanding your word, of putting together, Lord, the things that we read there. I pray, Lord, that the Spirit would help us take the mud off our eyes so that we see wonderful things in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.